got a Bible, you can open it up to Galatians chapter 1. Um, we are in a new series called Free, and we are journeying through the book of Galatians together. And the major theme of Galatians is the freedom we have in Christ Jesus through faith in Christ. It is a book that is filled with the good news of God's grace towards sinners through Jesus. It is uh, one of the, they're all rich, but one of the richest books in all the New Testament. And last week we talked about how we need to learn to recognize the difference between the true gospel that saves and that sets free and false gospels that enslave and ultimately condemn. And this week I want to talk about what we experience when we experience the gospel. When we experience the power of the gospel in our lives, what happens? There's a lot we can say about that. There's a couple of things Paul unpacks for us um, here this morning in Galatians. And there's a big difference between kind of knowing about something, hearing about something, learning about something, and taking in information, and experiencing something. Um, I'm uh, not, a, not a very avid golfer, and not a very avid golf watcher, um, but I guess I do watch some golf, one tournament a year, generally called the Masters, and, um, and they play that in, uh, in Augusta, Georgia, at Augusta National Golf Course, and when you watch it on TV, every, every golf fan talks about wanting to go to Augusta because, man, the colors are just so vivid. They always have it in the spring and the dogwoods and the cherry blossom trees or whatever. All those things are blooming, and it's just, man, it's just a gorgeous golf course. And um, there's a difference, though, in, like, seeing that right on TV and then, like, experiencing it and, like, going. So, like, several years ago, me and my dad got some practice round uh, tickets. We went and had to walk the course and watch the practice round it. Totally different, right? Getting to walk on the course, the colors are much more vivid in person than they are even on a high-definition television, and the pollen is way worse uh, than it is on TV. Let me tell you that. I don't know how they get that many kinds of pollen or whatever in one place, but my allergies have never been so bad as they were in Augusta, Georgia on that particular, uh, that particular week, that particular day. But, um, but it's different when you experience something and just kind of knowing about something or seeing something kind of having second-hand knowledge. And Paul makes it clear in Galatians that the gospel of grace is not simply something we need to hear, and it's not something he has simply heard, or something that is simply to be taught and learned, but it's something that he had experienced the power and the truth of in his life. His life had been radically impacted by God's grace in Christ Jesus. And experience made all the difference. He had an experiential encounter with the truth and the power of the gospel through faith. And only by the grace of God... And only by the power of His gospel can we experience true freedom from sin, from shame, from condemnation, and from dead, lifeless, pointless religion. It only happens through the power of the gospel. And starting in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul goes on sort of an autobiographical run here uh, for about a chapter, chapter and a half or so. And it's all about the gospel of grace and its impact on his life because it's God's gospel and not man's gospel. It's not a man-made invention, he's going to tell us, but it is something that's been revealed by God, from God. It is God's gospel, and because of that, it packs power uh, within itself. And Paul knows this because he's experienced it. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul has told them that he's not a manservant, but rather a servant of Christ, and he's been accused at this time, most believe, of preaching an easy gospel. 
of being a manservant because he's preaching an easy gospel. Sure, Paul preaches that you don't have to be circumcised and follow the law because if you did that, a lot less of those Gentiles he's leading to faith would want to get saved if the new members class consisted of a lot more than baptism. You know what I'm saying? If it was like, hey, we've got a surgeon on hand. It's great that you want to join the church today. We're going to baptize you. Then you're going to go to this room. You're going to get circumcised. Then we're going to go over to this room. We're going to teach you what you can and can't eat and what clothes you can wear and not wear now. I think I'll just join the other denomination. Is there another denomination that do that, right? And, and so they're like, he's preaching an easy gospel. It's easy believism. It's, it's, it's cotton candy. It's fluff. And Paul says, by no means, I preach God's gospel. I'm not watering it down. I'm just getting it right. You guys are actually watering it down by adding to it. You're, you're, anytime you add something to it, you're watering it down. Even if it seems like you're making it stronger, you're making it weaker. Because only the pure, unadulterated gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ can save. Paul says, it's not man's, it's revealed. It was, it was given to me by Jesus himself. He's recounting here. He's pointing them back to the Damascus Road experience. Where he was saved and encountered Christ and was saved and called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. <coughs> and it's only the gospel that comes from God that can change lives. And when we believe the gospel of grace, we experience Two things that Paul points out. There's a lot of things. But two things here in relation to Paul points out that when we, when we experience the power of the gospel in our lives, we will experience these two things. On one hand, we will experience transformation. And on one hand, we'll experience a new connection. And only the gospel has the power to change us to new people and both at the same time connect us to new people. It has the power from the inside out to make us a new person and at the same time, to connect us to other people who have been made new and make us into a whole new family and a whole new people. That's the power of the gospel. It creates new people and a whole new people, in the plural sense, called the church. Look at verses 13 uh, through 24, chapter 1. Galatians 1, verses 13 through 24. Paul says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I went uh, and still un I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God. So the first thing we experience when we experience the power of the gospel is we experience transformation. Transformation. That's what Paul recounts here in verses 13 to 24 of chapter 1. His personal testimony. And we experience life change when we encounter the power of the gospel when we place our faith in Christ because the gospel is, in fact, by definition, the power of God unto salvation. One scholar pointed out how Paul is here in this passage pointing out that only God's gospel in Jesus could have pulled him out of such devotion to his former religion in Judaism. He speaks to his devotion and commitment, how he was advancing beyond his contemporaries, how he was zealous for, his, uh, for the traditions of his fathers. And Paul wants them to know, I wasn't an easy convert. 
This wasn't a he makes sense kind of thing. Like, oh, he grew up in the church and this. No, no, no. Also, it made no sense that I would be a Christian other than the power of God. In fact, I, I was the opposite of everything you would think in terms of an easy convert. I, I was not low-hanging fruit for Jesus. I was the guy that you thought would never become a believer in Christ. And apart from the power of God, it makes no sense that Paul would ever become a believer. He saw the church as a enemy. You see, Paul writes in Romans 1, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also to the Greek, the Gentile. The gospel is the power of God and salvation. So it has the power within itself to transfer. It, it, it packs the power of God. And the Holy Spirit uses the good news of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to change lives. And we take and we place our faith in Christ, right? Because the gospel is about the person. We place our faith in Christ. We are radically transformed by the Holy Spirit from the inside out. God uses the gospel to change lives. Even people that seem as far gone and as unlikely as Saul of Tarsus, who we know is the Apostle Paul. See, Paul's testimony gave witness to the power of the gospel, a power that can only come from God. As Paul said, it's not man's gospel. So that only leaves one other option. It must be God's gospel. And see, the transformation we experience when we believe the gospel is connected to relationship to Jesus. Look at verses 15 and 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Okay? So Paul further describes the God-centeredness of his conversion by pointing out how God set him apart before he was born. Before birth, God had chosen him, chased him, and, got, and was pursuing, was going to pursue him. Had a plan for him. But Paul still had to make a real choice in real time. But that happened because God called him by grace. And Paul responds in repentance and faith by the grace of God. Now, he says he was pleased to reveal his son to me. Now, that phrase in the Greek can actually also be translated in me. And so some translations might actually say he was pleased to reveal his son in me. So what, what does that mean? Well, the point that Paul's making here is the Damascus conversion experience when he encountered the risen Christ was both the time where he literally saw the risen Christ in bodily form and at the same time, it was the time where the spiritual blinders were removed and he understood who Jesus was and his son was revealed in him. In other words, there was a heart change. His, with the, the eyes of his heart, not just the eyes of his physical body, he beheld Jesus for who Jesus really is. And the Holy Spirit allowed him to understand who Christ is as the exalted Son of God. Paul had seen Jesus and he had him both revealed to him and in him. And life change is always connected to Christ and the Holy Spirit opening our spiritual eyes to understand who He is. It's only when, like Paul, we have those spiritual blinders removed to behold Jesus for who He is that we experience inside-out change of gospel grace. See, our experiences don't mean much. Our church experiences, the professions of faith we make, don't mean much if they're not connected to an objective truth. There has to be something objective about it. It can't just be, I feel this, or I feel that, or I prayed this, or I prayed There's got to be objective truth. And Paul starts there, but he says, but listen, this was about a real person. God revealed his son to me. And this gospel that I preached for was revealed by Jesus Christ. It's connected to a real person who lived in a real place in a real time in history. And he's saying, this Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the chosen one, the one whom all the prophecies fulfill. All this is connected in a very short little way. He's saying for these people, like, this this is an, a, an objective, real person. I met the risen Lord. 
My experience is connected to reality. It's not a figment of my imagination. Your conversion experience is only valuable if it's rooted in the objective truth of Jesus. This Andy Pamby, I cried, I prayed, I said something. If it's not connected to the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, his life and his death on your behalf, and where you place your faith in a real person who really lived and really died and really rose again, that it's all subjectivity and it's not grounded in anything. There's no reality there. There's no gospel there. There's no conversion there. It's got to be connected to Christ. See, and here's the other thing. We're not saved by a life change. Sometimes we have to be careful because even in the church we can talk about how Jesus changes our life and if you know Jesus, you know change and all that kind of stuff. But let's make it real clear. You're not saved by transformation. You're not saved by a life change. We are saved by Jesus and by grace through faith in Jesus. And if you become a better person or become less outwardly sinful, but it's not because of faith in Jesus and the change he brings from the inside out, then you've turned over a new leaf, but you don't have new life. You can have a changed life and not be connected to Christ. People have those experiences. Man, you can do all sorts of things. You can, you can go through rehab or whatever. You, you can get connected to a community of people. You can get married, and that can impact your life and your mind. You can have kids and straighten up, right? That happens to people. They go through seasons of life, man. They go out there, and they're, they're living life however they want to. Then they get married, and they have kids, and they, they, they start getting involved in church, and they settle down. And, all, and, they, and that's when their life kind of changes, but it's not connected to Jesus. If you're not careful, your kids and your wife are your functional Savior that helps you clean up your life. But that's a new leaf. That's not a new life. We're not saved by life change. We're saved by Jesus. Life change is the fruit, not the root of conversion. We're not saved by our spiritual fruit. But at the same time, a fruitless tree is a dead tree. It's a dead tree. But we, when, we, when we put our faith in the gospel of grace, and we experience the power of the gospel, we experience inward change. Notice Paul tells him about his past. He was a persecutor of the church. He violently persecuted the child of the story. But he, he only gives the detail they need to make the point. You notice that? He doesn't go into gruesome, gory details of how exactly he persecuted people. There's, we don't have like chapters and chapters on this. He just makes the point and moves on. Because the point is Jesus, not Paul's back. And if Paul wants them to see that this was a God thing, and for me to be doing what I'm doing today, God had to change my heart. That's the point. And he wants you to have enough detail to know that. You don't really need a lot more. Paul knew what it was like to have a past. He knew what it was like to, to not recognize the old you and for others to not recognize the new. He can identify with that. When we come to faith in Christ, we experience an inward change that does affect outward change. And it's really a miracle of God. Your conversion may not feel as miraculous as the Apostle Paul's or sound as miraculous as the Apostle Paul's, but every conversion is a miracle. Because no one comes to Christ apart from what Paul called that call of God's grace. God called him. Without the Holy Spirit wooing you and, and the Holy Spirit drawing you to Christ. We, we don't just wake up one morning and decide we want to get saved. You get saved because God sets his heart on you and he chases after you and he chases you down. He saves you. It's a miracle of God. Conversion is of God. It's a work of God. If you, if you never see a lame man walk, if you never see a blind man given sight, if you have faith in Jesus, you have experienced a miracle. Life change. New heart. New destiny. Notice what Paul's doing, though. He is holding his experience up, saying, Look, 
The gospel is not for man. I didn't invent it. It's from God. Just look at what it has done and is doing in my life. He is using his testimony to point the power of God. He's saying, I am proof. Offering himself as an objective proof, excuse me, subjective proof that is connected to the objective truth of Jesus, the risen Christ. And today people say things like this. We've gotten so far away from that. People today say, well, look at me, look at Jesus. Right? I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. Right? That's like the anthem of the American Christian. I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. A lot of people say that aren't forgiven either. I don't mean that other. I say, a lot of times we use that as an excuse to live however we want to. Paul, Paul, you don't find that in Paul. Paul's like, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. Paul's like, I've been transformed. I'm not perfect, but I'm different. I'm transformed, and I'm being transformed. Now, at the same time, over in Philippians, he'll say, I haven't gotten there yet. I've got a long way to go. In Romans 7, he'll say, I'm still plagued by struggles with sin. He's not claiming perfection. He's not saying you don't mess up. But he doesn't shrink back from saying, Jesus has and is actively changing my life. I've been transformed. Don't phone that in. Don't forfeit that over. Don't feel like you have to apologize to people for the fact that Jesus has changed your life. And at the same time, don't assume just because you say you're forgiven that you are, have you experienced life change? Are you experiencing life change? Is the Holy Spirit actively at work in your life? We've got to get back to rooting the proof of our conversion in what the Bible roots it in. Not just, I think, I hope. Don't stand toe-to-toe with Jesus one day on just a open a prayer. When you close your eyes for the last time and you stand before Jesus, know that you are standing by faith on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Not simply, I hope. Paul's saying, man, I've experienced the power of the gospel. It has changed me. I, I, I know Jesus personally. He has radically changed my life. And I know his gospel changes lives because I've experienced it. He says, I've even experienced a change in person. Notice he says, I begin, he says, he saved me in order that I might preach Jesus among the Gentiles. In other words, I got a whole new, a whole new purpose in life. Now we aren't all called to be the apostles of the Gentiles. In fact, none of you are called to be none of us are called to be the apostles of the Gentiles. But we all all give a new purpose that are that's connected to Christ and his mission and his purposes. That always happens when you become a new believer. It's not just out with the old. It is in with the new and a new direction in life. When I was in high school, I remember I had to, throughout my sophomore year, I had to take this career interest inventory test. It was supposed to tell you what you'd be doing. It was, it was just like this. You had to answer all these questions. It took like two hours. Like, you know, this, that. I don't know if they still do that or not. And you would be like, you know, try, they didn't put in all these categories like law and education, all these different things. And I failed the test. And it's an unfailable test. I came back with little, no interest in almost everything. For some reason, I had some interest in law, which is really weird that you'd be not interested in everything but have a little bit of interest in law. I don't know. When Jesus saves us, he gives us direction, too. He gives us purpose. It's connected to him. He takes people that are wandering and aimless and don't really know what they're doing in life and don't really know what they want in life, and he... he he saves them and he changes them and he gives them a new purpose and he gives them a new direction that's connected to him and connected to his work. Our transformation is ultimately not about us, though. Notice what Paul says. He says, a glorified God. It's not about us. It's ultimately about God. He goes on to share 
who he saw and what he saw and how it didn't, he didn't immediately go to the apostles. He wants them to see. I had this personal experience with Christ. I'm not piggybacking off what the apostles... I'm not just kind of like making stuff up here. I had a personal experience with Christ. And I'm not just taking stuff that I've been given by the other apostles and, and then passing it down to you. I, I have my own experience with Jesus himself, just like the apostles have. And he's going to show me here in a minute. It's, it, it, it's connected to and it's with them. It's not, in, it's, not, it's not in contradiction to what they're telling you. But at the same time, I'm not like dependent on them to tell me what to tell you. What I'm telling you is the truth. And he says they glorified God because of him, because only God could have done what had been done in his life. They're looking at him and they're going, man, this guy was the biggest enemy of the church. And now he preaches the gospel that we preach. This is amazing. And the only thing they could do was glorify God. They didn't glorify Paul. That would have been weird. Right? That would have just been weird. I mean, this guy's like... Your uncles have, you know, been killed for this Christian faith because of Saul of Tarsus. And then he gets converted and you're like, Yay, Saul's awesome! Now, you wouldn't do that. That would be weird. This guy had your, your uncle locked up for believing the gospel. They didn't glorify Paul. They didn't glorify Saul. They glorified God. Now, look at what God has done in his life. And to forgive Saul, they didn't glorify the work in his life pointed to a power greater than him. And true conversion always does. It's not something we can do. It's not something we can make happen. It always glorifies God, and it does so because it puts Jesus on display in our lives. Notice verse 23. He used to persecute, and now he's preaching. See, life change that glorifies God always has a used to and a now. Not just a used to, and not just a now. A used to and a now. I have a past, and I have a present. I have a time in my life where God, I was separated from God in rebellion to God. I have a time in my life now where God's working in and through. And that's what Paul's pointing out there. If you experience the power of the gospel of grace, you will experience this life change, this transformation. And it's permanent, it's continuous, and it's a process. It's a process. Because we still fail to struggle. Let me ask you, if you experience the power of the gospel, this transformation in your life, show it. Is it showing? Is the gospel a cool story to you? Or has it been made personal to personal faith in Christ? Has the death of Christ in your place on the cross hit home? Has the resurrection become a reality in your life, not just an event that happened a couple thousand years ago? Have you experienced personal power of the resurrection to faith in Jesus? When I died, Christ died. When, when Christ died, I died. When, when I rose, when Christ rose, I rose. Are you connected to Christ in that way through faith in Him that you have new life, old life is gone, new life is gone because of Jesus? And if you're in Christ this morning, the good news is your past is forgiven. Your future is certain. And your present is being shaped even though we stumble and bumble along in the process. Life transformation is not easy. It's not a perfectly neat, tidy story. But in Christ, it is certain that we can hope and know that He's going to continue to continuously change us into His image. Now look at chapter 2. second part of this experience with the power of the gospel. Chapter 2, we'll read to you from verses 1 through 10. Paul writes, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running, or had not run, in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. 
Yet because the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us in slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me from mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now this story shows us a critical moment in the history of the church. The church could have split right here, divided right down the middle. The, the gospel could have been compromised, but the gospel is the glue that holds the church together and brings about the connection in the church that connects us together to be God's unified people. And so God protected his gospel right here. And he used people like the Apostle Paul and James and Peter and John and these guys. And the second thing we experience, we learn from Paul's testimony here, when we experience the power of the gospel through faith in Christ is we experience connection. When we experience conversion, we not only experience transformation, we experience connection. We are made new, continually changed, and then we're connected to a new people, a new body, called the church. Now, all Christians are in the same spiritual family. The church, one big spiritual family, called to unity. Our forefathers we see here in chapter 2 are modeling this for us. They're modeling what church unity is going to look like. At a time when much could have been lost, when they could have went their separate ways, they united. They united. Paul took Titus, it says, when he went on this meeting. And he went and says he set the gospel before them. He wanted to make sure they were not going to undercut his message. What he's doing here is he's like, I want to make sure I'm not, I haven't run in this race in vain. What he's saying is this, I want to make sure that there's not a disconnect here. I know I'm preaching the right gospel. I want to make sure that these guys aren't going to come in and start going, oh, no, Paul's not telling you the whole truth, and start undercutting this and clamping down on the spiritual fruit I'm seeing by adding things like circumcision and things like that. I, I want to get, I want to know what's happening here. And Paul, what you're also seeing here is Paul is connecting himself to the church. He's saying, I'm not going to be out here as a long ranger. You see, he's already got other believers with him. He's living in community here. We see with Titus. And he's connecting himself to a larger entity here with the other apostles. And we see accountability here. We see connection. We see all this happening in the life of the apostle Paul at this time. Because even Paul understood that you can't be a long ranger Christian. There's no such thing. Even Paul felt the need to be connected to other believers. The idea of a Christian that would be completely disconnected from the body of Christ is a foreign idea of the Testament. You just don't see it. Some say, well, I love Jesus. I just don't care much about the church. I get the sentiment that that's deeply offensive to Jesus. You say, why? Because that's his bride that he died for. He wants you to love her too. He wants you to love his bride. Listen, if you don't like my life, we're probably not going to be friends. I'll speak to you. We're not going to hang out. Right? It wouldn't make sense. We're one. Right? We're, we're together. Right? It's a package deal. In the same way, I'm telling you, Jesus is not up there going, look, you can have this personal relationship with me. You can just hate me. I don't get to hate the church. No, if you trust and know and love him, you are the church. You're a part of it. You say, well, it's not perfect. I know we're not. And you're part of the problem. So I. We're the reason it's not perfect. It's not Jesus' fault. 
And it's not everybody else's fault. It's our fault, right? We have to own it. It's a, it's a flaw, we're a flawed group of individuals. We're transformed, but we're also being transformed. We're not perfect. We're not there yet. In 1 John, the Apostle John writes, man, if you've been born from above, you'll love the brethren. You know who the brethren are in 1 John's church? He says, man, if you've been born of God, if your conversion is real, you're going to love the church. You're going to love other believers. Now, you might not love everything that happens in church. You might not love all the stuff that gets attached to it sometimes. I get that. Churches, we do, we do crazy stuff. We're one big weird family sometimes. And I get all that. But when it comes to the people, the blood-bought people of God, you will love them. You will, and there will be the Spirit of God in you will draw you to the Spirit of God in them. And you will want to be united in fellowship with other believers. I'm telling you, a believer disconnected from the local church is a miserable believer. If not, it's a false believer. God does not have a He does not. You have a family. If there's a disconnection that you'll long to be a part, you'll know something's missing in my life. There's supposed to be something more here. And at some point, I believe the Spirit of God will work to connect you back to His church. When Paul went to Jerusalem, he found out that they, in fact, were embracing the same gospel of grace that he was proclaiming. Case in point, he says, Titus, he points out, Titus was not forced to be circumcised. Well, that's actually a big deal. Seems like a little like footnote. That's a big deal. He's letting us know that they accepted Titus. He wasn't made to become Jewish to be in the family of God. He didn't have to become Jewish after he became Christian. He says, these guys... These false believers that are coming in now trying to tell you that you have to attach all these other things to Christianity, well listen, they're saying they're from the apostles. And they're saying I'm disconnected from that. I'm telling you, I went and visited with them and they didn't make this guy get circumcised. They are, in other words, he's saying they're lying to you. These are false believers. He says, uh, in fact, he goes on to say these false brothers come in and they're the ones pushing circumcision. People who snuck in to spy out our freedom. Faux Christians, phonies. These false brothers had the potential to enslave the church as they're spying out our freedom. Now why would this enslave the church? Well, because anytime you add to the gospel, you enslave it to set fruit. If any part of salvation is performance-based, I'm now a slave to my performance. That's simple. The gospel is free or not free. It can't be on discount. Right? It's not 50% off. It's not buy one, get one. It's just free. Completely detached from our works. And ultimately, this is a picture, when you pull back and you look at the big, big picture of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, a big picture of gospel unity on display. By the end of the paragraph, they're all one in fellowship. They're all a team together. We don't see a church split. We see them rallying together around this one thing, the gospel, at a time when they're being challenged by outsiders who have infiltrated the church. And there's all this, this what are we going to do? Because everything's very new right now in church history. And they come together around the gospel. See, all believers have the same gospel of grace, the same Holy Spirit, the same mission. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. Same gospel. The gospel Peter was preaching was the same gospel Paul was preaching. Because the church has one gospel. In verse 8, the one who was working in Peter was working through Paul. Same Holy Spirit was at work in both of them. In verse 5, they had the same mission. Some went to the Jews, Paul went to the Gentiles, but they had the same mission to spread the gospel, to make disciples. They were going after two different groups of people, but to do the same thing, to see them become followers of Christ. Same gospel, same spirit, same mission. And it takes some sames to have a community. It just does. Same, for instance, if it's your neighborhood, 
You got to have like you know, same city, same street, whatever. To have a neighborhood. To, to have to make up a, a school community. Everybody's in the same school building. You got to have certain sayings, right? Even, even within like little, little groups of um, affinity groups and stuff. You got to like some of the same things or whatever. Anything to have community, there's got to have something in common. And among Christians, our sayings are about our view of God, His Word, and Jesus, His Gospel, His Spirit, His mission. Our spiritual DNA, the core truths, are the same. And in Christ, we have more in common than we have not in common, even though we do have plenty not in common. So you have more in common today, if you're a believer in Christ, with a fellow believer from another country you've never met, than with an unbeliever in your family. You say, now how's that possible? Why? Because Christ is that big of a deal. The gospel is that central. And the connection through Jesus is that lasting and profound because it's eternal. It's eternal. See, we're connected by the gospel and we're connected for the gospel. Which means we're also united against things like false teaching and heresy as we see here. To be for something, you do have to be against some things. And they're against anything that's polluting the gospel. We see they come against it. He says, to them we didn't yield submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See, you protect what you love. The church loves the gospel. And so he says, we protected it. We protected the church and we're protecting the gospel. And together, they wanted to come together and preserve this gospel truth. We did this. We did not yield submission. Some things are worth fighting over. Some things are worth splitting over. Some things are worth losing people over. You say, what are those things? The gospel. The gospel is that thing. If you lose the gospel, you lose the church. But we're also connected in purpose. One team, you see that in verses 7 through 9, kind of fleshed out there. They recognized God's grace in Paul's life, the same grace at work in their life as at work in Paul's, and they welcomed him into their fellowship. They teamed up ultimately to spread the gospel. Right? They basically get together and they're like, listen, you, okay, you're going to go to the Gentiles, you're going to go to the Jews, okay, just do this, and, and they kind of like make this plan, and they start functioning like a team. Like, oh, we're actually kind of in this thing together, and they're functionally coming together as a team here to accomplish the mission. You know, I was on a lot of baseball teams growing up. I played baseball from age 5 to like age 8 until I graduated high school. And everyone on every team was different. But we all wore the same uniform. We all had the same ultimate goal, or should have, right? To win games, things like that. That was the ultimate goal. But we had different likes, different personalities. There were a lot of different people on that team. Some with, I hung out with some people on the team, one other people on the team. I was closer friends with some people on the team than other people on the team. But we're all the same team. Our outward identity was visualized by the uniform we wore our chest. And in the church, we don't all have the same likes. And we don't have to have the same likes to be on the same team. We're going to disagree on some issues and on some things. Just as they would have. But if we agree on the core tenets of the faith, we're on the same team. And part of being a great team is recognizing and appreciating the differences in your teammates. Right? It's like on a baseball team. You don't need everybody to play third base. You're going to have a lot of trouble with the right side of the baseball field for those of you that understand baseball softball. You've got to be able to spread it. You've got, you got to have people to be able to do what they do. Okay, you're fast and you can catch fly balls. You're in the outfield. I want to depart from the baseball illustration now because some of you look lost because you probably don't know what. But my point is, diversity is a good thing. Not a bad thing. In verse 7, they reorganize 
they, excuse me, they recognize that the same Spirit was working through Paul and Peter in different ways. That's what they're recognizing. They're like, look, look, the same God is at work in both of them. Accomplishing the ultimate, they're doing it, they're just gifted differently. They just have kind of slightly different callings. There are ways that we should be alike in the church, and there are ways that we should be different. And that's what makes us stronger. We've got to have some sayings, S-A-M-E-S, and we've got to have some differences. Or we're weaker. Diversity and, unity and, and commonality all at the same time is what makes the church so great. And our connection to Christ unites our core values. And that begins to shape our priorities. You see that happen here. Look at verse 10. They only ask that we remember the poor. That was the very thing Paul said that I was eager to do. What they're saying here, most commentators believe that the poor here is referencing the poor churches in Judea. And what they're saying is, listen, as you go out and reach these Gentile churches, and some of them are going to be places of means, and you're going to reach the people that have financial means and things like that, don't forget about the poor Jew Jewish churches back here. Don't forget about us. Remember the poor. Remember the poor. And Paul says, you know, I was eager to do that. Those are my, my people. I, I, I'm eager to do that. I, I wanted to do that. They were alike. They, they both valued the poor. And so they were both going to prioritize the poor. The same gospel was shaping Paul and shaping Peter and James and John. So they were having similar values and similar priorities. See, the gospel teaches us, for instance, to value all people because all are created in God's image. And Jesus died for all types of sinners, not just a certain color or class but all. See, you can't be shaped by the gospel and not love all people. And to say that, the gospel teaches us to love the poor. Because we know that spiritually we are all poor apart from Christ and He became poor to give us His riches. And so when your values, your loves are the same, your priorities begin to be the same. And that's why it was so easy. It was kind of like, oh, remember? I mean, there's like one sentence there. You think, oh, they're going to have to have a whole other meeting about this. Oh, what's, oh yeah, we're, we're on the same page here. Well, we value the same things. We value people. And we value the poor because all through the Bible, God tells us to value and love and serve the poor and help those that need help. That's not social gospel. That's the impact of the gospel in our lives. That's fruit. See, if we truly believe the good news, if the gospel is genuinely, radically impacted and is impacting our lives, we will experience the change, the transformation the gospel brings and the connection it brings. It will be, we will find ourselves connected to other believers and wanting to work in unity with them and we'll find ourselves experiencing life change. So the question this morning is this. First of all, have you been or are you being transformed by the power of the gospel? The death of Christ for your sins on the cross, His resurrection. Have you come to that place in life where you, where you truly turned from your sin and embraced Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? Will you stop trying to earn your way? Stop thinking that you could be good enough and then you cast all your hopes on Jesus solely to the cross you cling? Has that happened for you? Are, are, you a, are you a believer? A believer in Christ Jesus? Your identity in Him? Is He the only thing to rely on? You have the kind of faith that bears fruit in your life. Are you connected to the body of Christ? Are you as connected as you should be to the body of Christ? Are you walking in unity with the body of Christ? Are you pursuing unity with the body of Christ? That's the other thing. This could have been a very divisive thing. You had two groups of people. 
There could have been a lot of confusion, but here's why it worked out. They agreed on the gospel, but they both pursued unity. If one group wants unity and one group wants a fight, you get a fight. You don't get unity. They both wanted unity. And so they got together around the gospel. They like they high five. they went on mission. Are you pursuing unity in the church? With your life, with your heart? Are you connected? Let's pray that we be a people that are continually being transformed by the gospel. That are continually being drawn to connected with each other and other believers by the power of the gospel.